Hello and welcome back to a new Rainbow Cast with Autistically Al, the podcast with a interview and chat to neurodivergent people about their neurodivergent lives, exploring neurodivergency in colour. And as you may be very familiar with the series, you know, like with last week, you know, we had, can remember, we had Kyra uh, Lawrence on just a heads up that. Next episode will be with uh, Sarah, Sarah Anne, uh, who is a uh, TikTok uh, social media creator and be talking about experiences as Latin American artistic woman. And for then, back to this episode, uh, which will see me chat to Nicholas Ferrin, Nicholas Ferrin, like me as well, son from quite nearby and the most closest. Uh, Geographically, uh, the other person I have interviewed on the podcast, but yet there hasn't been any, you know, in in person interviews. But uh, this was great chat I have with Nicholas, who I uh, connected through LinkedIn. I was I saw an article about him and writing in the Guardian about his experience attending the festival. And so his experience has been autistic attending the festival. But this interview sees him also exploring areas of journalism, what it was like his experience in school, to his experience with mental health. But in this episode, there is some challenging, challenging themes even. A challenge in about his uh, mental health and with his mental health, chat about uh, like experience with like suicidal thoughts and the idea of suicidal ideas and so if there's anything about that type of trauma that type you know mental health breakdown and you know mental health uh, thing uh, trauma that can be triggering maybe wait and you know avoid this episode but if you uh, comfortable with listening to that and feel like it, you're in the safe position. I hope you enjoy this interview, but for anyone who uh, wants to find out a bit more if they're affected by any issues mentioned in this episode, please visit the new rainbow project uh, dot com slash olive bonds, which is the new page which gives you links to any services, any you know, like support services that can, that might be appropriate help for you and appropriate support if you've been struggling with any themes mentioned in the podcast. So, hope you enjoy this episode. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? I, I'm Nick Fern. I'm a freelance journalist from Neath in South Wales. And to talk about your career in journalism, but also being autistic. So, do you want to give a bit of a background into your experience being autistic? I was diagnosed with OCD and anxiety disorder when I was 14, when I was in school in the late age to be diagnosed with high-functioning autism. When I was in primary school, there were certain traits that I had that could maybe be a bit childish. Primary school, you're a child. And when I moved over to secondary school, I think that's when my parents started seeing differences in my behaviour. 
that's normal for my age, 27. So I've, I, I mean, I've had the diagnosis now for quite a while. Under the more medical model, you would be seen as more high functioning, but I tend to prefer to use low support needs autistic person and when you was in school, in primary school to secondary school, Bob's experience of low support needs and like masking and surreal traits were weren't as picked up as much by your teachers and parents. Yeah, for me, which I find is probably one of the hardest things of it is the fact that it's a hidden disability, isn't it? People can't tell, can they, until like you, I suppose if you have a conversation with someone like myself, but if you were to meet me, you wouldn't be able to tell. I do have a lot of challenges that I face on a daily basis, like when you are a spectrum disorder, so my experiences are going to be completely different to other people on the spectrum. Because everyone has different experience autism and different autistic traits. Although you would be seen as having low support needs, but people might not see the challenges that you have with your mental health, social fatigue, or the fatigue of social situations, where that's engaging with friends. The mental health side effects of growing up, it's not understood understood as much as you would need and getting a diagnosis. So there's some things that may become contributed to your mental health challenges with being autistic. But then I guess within the work environment as you are freelance journalists then that people not obviously knowing or seeing it then and recognising that you're autistic then might not understand. Definitely. There's things you mentioned, low support needs. For me, it's like I live on my own, but I wouldn't be able to live on live on my own if, if I didn't have the support of my family. I've got a twin brother who isn't on the spectrum and he helps once a week and helps helps clean and mopping and stuff, yeah. stuff like that. My mother who's, who's also disabled, she, if if they're speaking on, on the phone to, to the bank, she handles that type of stuff. My dad tends to, if, if I need a shelf built, he'll put it up. So it's like the way I live, it's only enabled by the sport of loved ones. You mentioned about me being freelance and, and I definitely choose to be freelance because it's more suitable for my needs or obviously working from home and tend to do a lot of my interviews over email or instant messaging because I struggle speaking to new people like a lot of people on the spectrum and I, I, I think like the challenge I have is, is you know, people look at me it doesn't look like I have form of autism. I've also got mobility issues. I have a blue badge and I would say that pretty much a lot of the time when I park in disabled, the looks I get from people who with probably thinking, you know, why is he's not disabled? Why is he parking in a disabled parking space? I think that there's not a lot of understanding of hidden disabilities and that creates a lot of challenges. You feel the work are you Freelance journalist, you know, you specialise in tech and enterprise journalism and it's something that, with, probably without being a feeler, has been quite a difficult thing to do, as I guess you probably find that geographically in a place like 
females lose support needs. Myself, that I have needs and support going into certain environments of like an additional person, like a close family member or friend that can help you because it can be quite a socially anxious position to be in. How has that been for you doing work and and your lifestyle, like a semi-support situation? Yeah, for me, I think it really helps that I'm very close with my my family. If my brother takes me full chopping or my dad accompanies me somewhere, it doesn't feel like I'm like different and someone there is acting like a carer or it's my family I, I don't feel like I stick out like a sore thumb I mean I I was up until January I, I was in a long-term relationship and my ex-partner did a lot gave a lot of support that what my parents would usually give since we uh, broke up I've relied on my family even more my twin brother it's nice that we're so close yeah you know, because... it doesn't feel like He's like a carer or something. Even like when I went to Reading Festival, as I wrote in the piece, I attended using the accessibility services and, and my friend came and she was with me all the time. A lot of my friends are, they're all you know, very understanding of my condition and the challenges I face. The important thing is being able to have friends and family around you that for autistic people they might not have the privilege but it is important to have that kind of close circle of friends and family and people you can trust that can help you live in your life. And going back to when you were writing about the Guardian article I read about your autistic experience of attending a festival that it had tracks tens of thousands of people and I know we're Sensorily, uh, I demand. I guess it means very big thing to have friends that you could explain it and for them to empathize with your needs. Yeah, I mean, which again goes back to the importance of you know writing about this stuff because I never we read in festival. I always kind of wanted to go to a festival, but I never felt I could because it's extremely busy. Being pushed around in a crowd would be awful. I would really struggle with that. My friend asked me if I wanted to go and I Googled it and there wasn't really much information online. I was interested in looking at what the view, the disabled viewing platforms would look like, trying to get myself comfortable and preparing before actually attending. And, and a lot of the videos online would be like from 10 years ago. The reason I wanted to write that piece was because I think it, it was important to shine a light on that topic and to show other people who are in a similar boat to, to me who might want to go to a festival, but they have a disability that would make it challenging and then they just convince themselves that they're not going to go that actually that there is good support it wasn't a perfect experience but like in the disabled campsite the, the grass it was very overgrown I was using a walking stick there was a lot of times where my stick like was get, getting caught in the grass and and you know you could you could easily trip over and hurt yourself. The disabled exit was very far away from the uh, viewing stands. I think there was a period where I went to go see Becky Hill's gig and I couldn't actually get into the viewing stand because stand it was too full. It was really important that 
the organisers of the festival take on board the feedback that I've written yeah. in the article, because a lot of it can be solved for future future festivals. It kind of felt as if like they didn't necessarily understand because I can't now get into the viewing stand. I'm going to go back to the tent or sit in my car. And I it it was a shame that I missed like one of the artists that I really wanted to watch. Difficult position to be in and something that you would expect a lot more for the festival well, to be to win because festival like Red and Leeds has been going for decades and one of the most lot one of the probably the like second biggest long established uh, music events and festivals in the UK. Uh, second coming behind Glastonbury, where it's very uh, big on tele- television, and you know there's always attracts big names. As you said, you went managed to see. Uh, Billy Eilish there as well. And yeah. from your, like, I know from the articles to clarify when you say you like you have mobility issues and stuff like that, I remember you saying that it's affect just for yourself. And that's like some other, like, how challenging sometimes it might need a stick and a uh, walking stick with you. And having the fact that the campaign was situation was further away from, as I say, the Disabled exit and entrances wasn't quite mobility wise, but I was saying that with the festivals that you would expect them having more considerations into looking at how many, you know, like disabled people are attending the festivals, since yeah. with that, as you say, there, there's because I think you were saying that there was cues in the well, in the article, there was quite a big queues for the disabled toilets and there wasn't enough in terms of the people attending on that, as you say, yeah. that for a uh, performer like Becky it's like, it's like a it can be like a head, headline stage performer but probably not headline in the festival but like on the main stage of the festival yes. and yes. attracts a big audience you would run into with that there are pl- plenty of seats for disabled attendees. Yes, I, I, I think that it's, it's so important that, which it didn't seem to do this year, which is unfortunate, they seem to be giving out, you know, loads of disabled tickets, which is great, but the facilities, there's not enough facilities for all those disabled people. And, you know, it, it but then at the, at, at the same time, you know, a lot of the, you know, the people working there are volunteers and I have a lot of respect that they're giving at their time to yeah. help, obviously help disabled people enjoy a music festival experience. And, and you know, for me, like, you know, I write in kind of like in the conclusion of the piece, you know, it was a good experience, something that yeah. you know, it wasn't an experience, but I'm glad I did, did it. But I, I think that the issues I experienced would 100% put me off going again, you know, which which, which is a shame. But, but yeah, and, and I think as well, like, I think the fact, like, like I mentioned earlier on, I think because you can't tell that I have autism and, and you know, mobility problems, and unless I have a stick with me, yeah, people assume that they might assume that, for example, that... You don't really need the support, and you'll be fine. And and 
yeah, I just got the sense that, you know, when, you know, the lady said that the viewing platform was full, it just seemed to me like she just expected me to go into the crowd and watch it there. And, and, and like, as if you can turn your disability off, like, like a light yeah. switch, you know, though, but... Yeah, like, even though I said, you don't, don't, like, put the blame on the volunteers, but in terms, of, like, the people who co- coordinate and manage the festival and, like, set out the disabled tickets and selling them, and if they not, if they estimate, like, a certain, for hype, like, a certain percent of your attendees are disabled, which it can be, like, probably since festival like that is, like, multiple tens of thousands, they're probably yeah. there's likely like to be like a few thousand that maybe have a disability that yeah. you know in terms of like the population is when fifth disabled if that be hidden or you know with a physical disability and because of that you would expect that you look at how they estimate like the amount of support and the amount of facilities need to be matching that and I say that. Because there was little information beforehand, as I say, to give you like a video or so you photos of what viewing platforms look like. There's not much visible awareness and information for disabled person attending events such like that. It's something that you would wish the festival organizers organizers would take on board. Yeah. And and the, the you know hundred percent. I think that you know I I my hope is that obviously given the, the you know the the size of you know the Guardian as a newspaper, I would guess that the organisers have hundred percent seen the piece, and and you know hopefully they take the feedback on board and can 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 improve. I have respect for volunteers giving up their time and I, I think that I don't know if they do this already for the volunteers working on the disabled platforms just giving them a bit, a bit of training on disability and I think just like in terms of society I don't think most people really understand autism and, and disability there's obviously a lot of stereotypes Asperger's isn't used anymore yeah, but even when I was diagnosed with Asperger's, I yeah. always prefer to use the term autism because people understand it more. And with Asperger's, there's like a there's so many stereotypes that you're a computer hacker or an IT genius or all these different things that yeah. you see. I, I actually one of my first ever big commissions was was an article for Buzzfeed. I, I think it came out like ten years ago, and it was around stereotypes about Asperger's unfortunately it sometimes feels like they'll do some sort of accessibility just to tick a box a lot of the time with concerts and that it's really hard to get a disabled ticket because yeah there's not enough seats for for disabled people an interesting thing that on TikTok there was a lot of drama with Adele Las Vegas residency she stopped the show to tell off a security guard who kept going up to someone in the front row who was standing up dancing, telling him to sit down, saying that, you know, basically it's a concert, people are going to come and dance. But 
what people don't understand is, if you're disabled, I've been in concerts before. It was Adele, I couldn't get any disabled tickets because they'd all gone. And then my mother and I were seated in the O2 arena, but people were standing up. Both of us have got, got mobility problems. We were sitting down because the people standing up that you couldn't see the concert. So I just don't think people are very understanding or conscious of the challenges that disabled people face on a daily basis. As I said before, it's so important that if you have a public platform, shed a light on these type of topics, you know, as a way to improve awareness. Yeah, as I said, it's definitely something that is important to shed light on and actually address because... You know, I'd say that it can spark conversations and hopefully encourage those who organise events or who are like, look, in a position of power that can, and authority that can help to improve such things for disabled people yeah, to actually exactly. consider changing things. Because as I said, with the concerts and like uh, live events for disabled people, it's something that you want to see a bit more consult with disabled people on in terms of how to improve the environment and you know the training and support that the staff working in the like on the concerts yeah. and in supporting disabled people on intervening with disabled people yeah. in those processes and so whether it's like the security pe- people to any like health and safety people or any of the people who work in, in the accessible areas you know like to get like people like sitting access to I'd say the viewing platforms for disabled people at like a music festival like Reading and Leeds because you know if you were attending that festival you would have had to be able to, to know that these festivals have their volunteers like in specific areas been like given certain training and some elements of that being publicised that they are, you know, aware of people with autistic people's needs and other disabled people's needs. And for that to be communicated with the festival attendees who are disabled and buying a disabled ticket. And back to when you were saying about the Adele concert, you know, with the environment, for like like a venue rather than a, you know, festival site like, Red in Leeds, you would want to have disabled people consulted with in terms of the environment of wherever the disabled seats are present in the right places and they can access them enough. Right. And as said, that you would want to like make sure you nobody's standing anyway and blocking the viewing of seeing somebody like Adele. Right. Just think that when I was in school, I left school 10 years ago. And I, I kind of mean the first school I was in, it, it, it you know, mainstream comprehensive school, no support for for like autism. And, and the teachers made my life hell. They didn't understand it at all. It'd be things like, we used to have, for example, like a, you know, basically they, they said green card. It was basically like a thing you'd show to 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 leave less than like five minutes early. So, for example, you can go, you miss the crowds and can get yeah. to the canteen. And what was happening 
you know, before the cables and what, what, you know, if I was n- nagging, being repetitive, which is obviously a big part of autism. Yeah. I don't, I prefer like asking for the word, you know, the term be asking for reinsurance than nagging, but you know what I mean? And, and yes, it would just be like, you know, if, if you keep nagging me, Nicholas, I'm going to keep you behind five minutes behind for something that I couldn't help. And then what would happen then? I wouldn't have lunch at all because I, there would be too many people. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, I wrote a piece in, in the Evening Standard at the start of the year about autism in schools. And, you know, speaking to the parents, in 10 years, I, I don't think anything has changed. I You know, it's, teachers don't seem to be getting appropriate training. And, you know, it, it's a vicious circle of autistic children ending up in the wrong school. And then, you know, having a really tough time. I mean, for me, the effect on it was I, you know, was always, like, not in class or whatever because, you know, what they essentially did in the end while my parents were going through the statementing process so that I could move to, like, a more appropriate school. You know, they put me into this unit that they had, which wasn't for, like, autistic people. It was for, like children with behavioural needs problems. So yeah. as I'd missed months and months of, of education. So when I moved to the other school, I was I, I was so behind on, on like my work. I, I, at the time, I mean, I moved, I think it was either year nine or year 10. And, and, you know, I missed all that education at the time that I was going to be starting my GCSEs. And, and it... it you know, I just sadly think that things haven't changed and, you know, I can't see it changing anytime soon unless, you know, the government take it seriously and roll out, you know, sufficient training on, on, on autism, you know? Yeah. It, it, you shouldn't be deprived of an education because you're you're disabled, but, but that's pretty much what, happened to me when I was in school you know and, and yeah it's a shame so I think there's a lot of work to do as a society in general of, of improving awareness and, and not to get political I think this government the Tories they don't seem interested at all in in helping disabled people. Given that education's devolved in the way it's like also a multi-party issue because with Welsh Labour of the devolved power of education, there's definitely that thing that could be argued that both of the main parties in British politics aren't do enough to address it and look at education can be improved for autistic and they were divergent people. Uh, a few weeks back on the podcast, or a few months back even, there was interviewing somebody who was like, uh, there's a lot of youth activism and in the area of disability. And she was saying that, that no teachers really, when they were getting the qualifications, that in a way, Marvin, you know, qualifying to become a teacher and get you know, a degree to do that, you get training on teaching disabled people so inherited like there's never an inherent problem within that system if they're not getting training 
before they enter the classroom. And that's something that all teachers up and coming who are going into the classroom for the first time do need to have that training, as you said. But, you know, there's a lot of things that do need to be improved on here that I normally do ask guests. But things that they would like to be improved upon, would like to see improved upon our other, and to see, like, seeing things made better within society, as we was hinting at, you know, like, explore this for the evening standard, as explore, explore how things can be not so perfect for disabled people in the festival environments for the Guardian. So, as being an artistic person yourself, what are the things that those like key institutes, key environments that could be improved on for autistic people that you would like to see? I I think 100% concerts and festivals, schools, supermarkets, for example. Disabled people are people. We all need... We all go, we're all in school at, at one point in our lives. We all need to go to the supermarket. We all, you know, want to go to concerts and that. And I think every place should be taking steps to improve accessibility. What I really love that supermarkets have done, Tesco, for example, over yeah. the last few years, is like on the disabled toilet, they put in, you know, not every disability is, is visible because, like, I use disabled toilets for many different reasons. I said about the, about the blue badge, I get looks from people that you're lazy going in there and not going to the men's and people don't realise that I do have a disability. I think like things like the signposting on doors, because obviously like the, the, the standard disabled logo, it, it only really applies to one type of disabled person. It, it's important that people in wheelchairs get the access that, that they need. It's going to make life harder, but I do think that logo should change because it doesn't apply to everyone. It perpetuates the idea that the disabled only means being in a wheelchair. I think people automatically think then that if you're not in a wheelchair, you're just lazy and, and shouldn't be using, like, disabled parking bays or disabled toilet, having the, the letter saying that not every disability is visible. I think that is really good step forward I just think that I wish people were more understanding that you know just because you can't see the disability doesn't mean you're not disabled which I would say that makes my life challenging and it puts me off going out sometimes because it's always the same situation like people giving you looks, parking and disabled or using disabled toilet. And I think that comes down to the fact that as a society, people aren't aware of hidden disabilities. It's really with, uh, in terms of areas like parkets, supermarkets even, and concerts and festivals, you would rather like see them more focus on the key areas for them to, for people in general who are in those environments change the perception of how they view disability and go from with it from an open mind. So like when you're like engaging more as a person in the public and in a more public facing environment like that, you know, with you know, like random people, strangers and all that. So for the people to not judge a person yes. by the 
you know, and for, but going back to when you was talking about schools and, you know, your experience schools and like the problems you still face there, think are there. And in terms of that, what are the things that you think that need to be improved into schools for them to be better than they would diverts and children and young people? The big thing is training. And I'm assuming, I don't really know much about the topic, but I'm assuming that when you do in your teacher training that you, it, it, that there's some sort of discussion around disabilities. But I think it's really important that, you know, instead of it just being a few words on a PowerPoint in university, it should actually be training teachers actually maybe speaking to, to neurodivergent people who can you know, who can actually tell them the challenges that they're facing because, you know, you know, because we live in the reality on a daily basis. So I think that, you know, having, you know, communicating, I, I think, you know, you know, whether it's training teachers or, you know, festival organisers, I think if they spoke to people with, with, you know, with disabilities, it, it would help improve their understanding a lot, you know? Yeah, and so I, yeah, I understand of, that. So I guess you went to mix with that in terms of when you get your teaching qualifications to when you're, like, looking at events man- management and organising events, that in terms of the consultation uh, period done for people like on the table around the table on those discussions that you have people who are disabled themselves and yeah. have encouraged if they're disabled to be in those type of jobs and somebody who can be like an accessibility consultant to help you with those uh, areas. Going back to your evening standard article I wrote about the artistic experience of school. Can you briefly summarise what you explored on in that? I wrote it in January, so I'm trying to think now. But it was kind of around where the schools are fit for purpose for autistic people. So speaking to autism experts, parents, about their experiences. And and just like the... The overall sentiment is, is, as I mentioned earlier on, is that there is a lot of things that need to be changed. On Twitter, there's a big community of autistic parents and they all seem to be having the same battles that my parents had to fight like 10 years ago. I guess it helped you really understand a lot more the state of play in terms of what the reality is for autistic people right now in 2020 for you within the educational system and so what was it like talking to those parents or autism experts and what did that give you yourself in terms of understanding things and what type of things that you got from that and maybe like looking at stuff like that you know what do you think you're interested in exploring more of that early off journalism, writing more and investigating more around the experience of 
autistic people and they were divergent people in that, yeah. that area. Not to sound like a broken record, I think like the the sense that I got was that parents are fighting a losing battle with like local education authorities and and which is pretty much it was like the stories that they were telling me were very reminiscent of the experiences I had like 10 years ago. I was just absolutely shocked the last 10 years that things haven't seemed to to have changed. But I got the sense that parents feel like they're fighting for it on their own. Things haven't changed. You question about whether I want to write about this topic more. Definitely. I mean, I would say that really enjoy writing about my own experiences and I think it's important. I think it it's helped spread an awareness, which is really important, you know, making change happen. It's more the hardships of education and the battles you were facing. It's more so when you were in school and you got some detentions that you shouldn't really be assumed a detention for because it was more inquisitive and asking questions and, and to be assured and try to listen and understand and learn from it. But yeah. sometimes you like had some situations where you end up missing uh, your lunch in a canteen and to uh, when you said about like being put in a situation where you were in with people who were more excluded and you know like sent away from like the day-to-day classroom yeah. settings because yeah. like the evil uh, situations yeah. and I guess those are the struggles that still going on today. If I can just add to that as well, I think that every day for years I was missing lunch and, and it's a bit embarrassing to admit and I and but I think it's important to to, to say is, is yeah. also well I mean I was always scared to go to the t- toilet because I'd go to the into the toilet and all the other boys would pick on me, you know, call me gay boy or whatever, all these different things. Because it's very hard being different in, in general. And there were days where, you know, like I was not going to the toilet all day. I wasn't eating and I was wetting myself. My experience in school, in my first school, before I moved to, got statemented and moved to more appropriate school, I, I was being deprived of basic human rights by the school. And, and the educators and I that now is something like, like they wouldn't even like I remember my mother ringing at the school and being like you have a disabled toilet for like in the reception like why can't I use that and they were like no that's only for adults so they didn't want to help at all they didn't they didn't care and even now the trauma of that has affected me to, to now like I wouldn't even like use going to the men's toilet I use a disabled toilet people don't realize that bullying or being treated like this by teachers how that can affect that's affecting me now for the rest of my life and I just feel let down at the the time I mean obviously I've got older I've kind of I mean it is what it is and and I always kind of assumed that things had changed and it and it has and then it just breaks my heart that there could be other people you know in similar circumstances to me and and I think that is just a really horrible thought. It is something that you would be concerned and it still goes on when schools because like 
Tom Emerson comprehensive score, Tom, to 2017 and even with those years. Still quite recent, I would say. Yeah? There's still elements of, you know, like, you know, local, as well as playground homophobia. And there's, like, subtle bullying that can traumatise people and trigger anxiety and that can really make school an unpleasant situation. And since in the same case, I assume that they had the same issues where the boys' toilets were, like, in a bit of a terrible state. Like, I remember, if it were my to- school toilets, like, fairly out like lo- locks in them, some, sometimes some of the doors will be off them. And, like, I remember that, if, like, it really needed to go to periods, I tried to go, avoid going in school, like, I'd have to, like, try to use a, you know, like, your rucksack on the doors to keep, keep it set. And then sometimes, like, poke over the sides of the toilet uh, cubicle. And so there's certain things that you just didn't feel like in a place where you would rent the privacy and feet of quiet. Yeah. That you didn't get that experience. And with, like, disabled toilets, sometimes probably the same in schools that, you know, they are locked up most of the time and, like, not, probably not even, like, a disabled person, even in a school mm-hmm. where that they might be allowed disabled children to use that, that yeah. might not be, like, able for the disabled child to open that themselves. Yeah, and just to make it more people, I mean, like, when I got statemented and I moved to a course artist and been knocked down now, it, it was a lovely school. I needed my own toilet. They allowed me, there was a disabled toilet that I could use. They were great. The school was amazing, really great autism unit and teachers were yeah. great. Then it was quite a relatively small school as well. And then they knock it down and merged. And now, you know, I couldn't fathom being in such a big school as an autistic person. That must be horrible. And it's just like... They had a really good school for autistic people. Saying for like a mainstream environment, then in a lot of the Southfield schools that they built now, is a lot of the more these new super schools popping up because, like, I remember my school. And one thing at least, like, it was two years in like one school environment, so that was like, you know, like three hundred in like, like the space of like that school and. It felt quite like a small environment, and these didn't get too busy. But when it came to like the upper school, I think that had like also like a similar figure, maybe like more up to five hundred. But that that yeah. kind of got built not in loud, but then but also like then in that school, when it came to accessibility, there wasn't fairly busy with like. Yeah. You need to use a wheelchair. There was literally pretty much no nothing really that was accessible because it was like with three to four stories with no lift. And I hope that in terms of being physically accessible, these schools are more designed for like including lifts and other con- uh, considerations with mobility issues. Yeah, but yeah. in terms of like. As I say, within a bigger school environment, it does seem a lot of a daunting thing to deal with. Overwhelming. And I think, just like from my experience and speaking to parents, what people don't realise is my experience 
with high function autism, I I obviously have uh, like special needs that need to be considered, but I've always been intelligent, and so I taking me out of a mainstream school wouldn't have been the right step because obviously I did my GCSEs, went to did A levels, and I went to university, and it it what they don't realize is you know it by not catering mainstream schools catering to the needs of disabled people it can deprive people of it of an education as I said as soon as I moved to the other school it, it was a completely opposite experience but you know it, it was you know great and the teachers were you know my English teacher especially I mean I, I you know when I went into school I was automatically put into like a bottom set for everything because because of the reports in the other school and I remember the head of English coming across my blog and being like shocked that I had that had the ability to write at a young age and then was in the bottom set for English and she moved me up to the top set and she really like nurtured me and believed in me and if that didn't have happened I would have stayed in the bottom set I could have potentially I wouldn't have had no interest I probably would have failed my English GCSE and my life would be completely different I wouldn't have a journalism career I wouldn't have gone to university so one person believing in you can change the course of your life. Back to the point when you made about like personally you prefer to use high to low sport needs rather than functional labels because I know that with functional labels there can sometimes be a like a more like internalised ableism or ableism with that of you in terms of like how sometimes perceived people who have been traditionally labelled as higher, uh, you know, low functioning needs. And I think because it's like, but it's also one of the things that the educational system hasn't always recognised as like the the complex abilities of an autistic person because yeah. autism isn't anything like a, isn't a learning disability, non intellectual disability. It's like set by like communication and sensory needs. So, so yeah. like sometimes that, like person like me or yourself, that sometimes you might have issues communicating and different issues like that, but still, you know, in terms of our various skills and intelligence. Like, yeah. you know, like there's, like, different variations of... Yeah. I, I'm struggling to know how to make the point, but there's a lot of with how people pursue people who are autistic. And, as I say, it's like, by pu- pu- putting you into, like, lower sets in schools, that wasn't recognising your, how able you are to win class, yes. but in terms sometimes, even if you need to be in lower sets, but sometimes some people, you know, teachers as you, like hinted at earlier that the communication of where, you know in terms of like how you teach an autistic person may end up seeing them as like less able in it, just because they haven't adapted their way of teaching to Bring out the best of a new yeah. divergent person's talents. I've got to be honest. I think an important point I just wanted to make was I actually, me personally, yeah. I hate the terms low and high functioning autism. Yeah. Because 
is spectrum disorder, my version of autism is going to be completely different to other people. And I'm sure there are things that I really, really struggle with that other people on the spectrum, you know, struggle with less and vice versa. You know, so I, I think it, you, you know, I think like what happens then, I think with those terms, if you were described as high functioning autistic, people assume that, you know, that life is pretty easy for you and, and it's not, you know. So I think that you know, considering it's a spectrum disorder, I think using those type of terms, yeah, I don't particularly agree with it because I yeah. think it perpetuates the idea then that, yeah. you know, it, that life is easy and it's not. Yeah, I totally agree with that. A lot of these problems as well, I'm, I'm sh- sure you can relate. Yeah. With, uh, as you get older and that, it, it, it creates a lot of other problems like depression and, and anxiety. And I would say that, you, you know, the last few years, like, and I've written about it a lot since a young age, I've, I've you, you know, had... A, relation, a long relationship with su- suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts and a lot of these negative experiences in school or is like caused I would say the d- depression so for me like like a lot of people with depression there are days where like I can't function at all and as soon as you asked me to come on the podcast I was really happy to do it but last week when I said I was unwell I suffer with sleep deprivation really badly so I have days where I'm asleep all day in the day and then I'm I'm up working at night so it's like there's a lot of uh, problems that can be uh, generated by uh, autism. Definitely it's not easy as being autistic and yeah I think that's a key thing of like functioning labels don't work and make things for autistic people and as an employee to the school system that's what, what can make a lot of trauma and make Things like this for autistic people is it's the autistic people for people's perceptions and judgments of autistic people, even if they're not diagnosed with those labels these days, and it can be quite impactful on mental health. And as you said, with your mental health, like something like suicide and suicidal ideas, and it's sadly far too high in the autistic community, and yeah. like the highest causes death within the community and it's something that mental health of autistic people does need to be taken seriously and as yeah. you said that from bullying in when you're in school and that can really knock on your mental health so much and like quite uh, thank grateful for you being so honest with that with okay. myself and I do understand with the sleep situation and because when I was reading the, in the Guardian and you said that you experience insomnia and like it can be quite hard like struggle to get off to sleep and like sometimes feel like you're working on a totally different time zone to yeah. what like yeah. the, when you're in and so like it's like hard to be able to like go you know like knock yourself to sleep Yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. even like with you know, like sleep medication that's been prescribed by the doctor, does little effect on actually yes. making me feel sleepier. Yeah. I I feel hundred percent the same way 
I've had that like you know and and the the reality of being an autistic adult you know unfortunately after 18 there's very little support and you you wait in then for like you know months on waiting lists for mental health for sometimes you know if you are suicidal and that you can't afford to wait months yeah. for, for support and I just think that I think that's the other big issue as well I don't think you know mental health you know it's, it's really non-existent on the NHS after you know 18 so I, I think that you know I think you know more I think mental health needs to be you know mental health can kill you know yeah it can kill it like any other disease that that you know it it, it can kill and and you know I don't think that that's been recognized yeah because no, I was I... Saying, if you're like treated like death by mental health similar to any other physical health like any like certain health condition that you could die from there's investment into like certain areas like improving certain treatments for physical health conditions although it's like there's similar pieces where there's a lot of waiting lists a lot more to be done but you know like mental deaths by mental health suicide is such a preventable one and such a, a like a situation where it's in desperate need for you yeah. know help for people because like there's there's not many places where you can know how to get help for free and lots of the uh, things you're going to go look up yourself and like for probably not people they thought if they go to the doctors or you know any health professional they're not so off the place right places for them to to refer them for and yeah. like as you said with like but being autistic and all that sometimes you know like and like diagnosis is a challenge enough so like there's a lot of if you're undiagnosed, you might not have the support and the right, like, mental health service that you need. I just think, you know, like, so I don't know if you have seen online or, or you know, pieces. I wrote the Huffington Post uh, piece a few months ago about my experience. I caught my ex cheating on me at, at a New Year's Eve party in London and, and I ended up you know, leaving the party, getting lost in London. And in my head, you know, I was feeling suicidal, wanted to obviously kill myself. And that's what I was looking for to do. And, and it, 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 someone stopped me, helped, helped me get to the police. And that kind person saved my life that night. And and I think the, the key thing is that it's compassion. I think if everyone is willing to be more compassionate and take steps to maybe improve their own understanding of, of autism and disabilities, then I, I think our lives would be so much easier. The, the fortunate fact is there are, a, there are a lot of good people out there. Yeah. Like, like, like I found out in January. So you were, like, from that, we were in, like, uh, like uh, access and mental health services beforehand, and after, like, you 
like in moment of feeling suicidal, did you like manage to get the right support that you needed in terms of your mental health after that moment? Yeah, so my parents had called 999 from Neef. They were on the way to London. So the police, I got it. You see a lot of, you know, which is justified. You see a lot of the bad things happening, particularly in the London Metropolitan Police. But I got to be honest, the police that night were amazing. They were so understanding and kind to me. So there are a lot of good people out there. When I came home, went to the doctors like the next day and I had sleeping tablets, which like you said, got to be honest, they didn't really do anything. And I had antidepressants and I've been on sertraline, Prozac, citalopram, fluoxetine. Yeah. I'm on that one at the moment and, you know, none of them seem to work. And and I've seen this interesting debate online that because of neurodivergent people, your brains are wired differently, that I've seen suggestions that because of that, that a lot of the common antidepressants don't work because it's like as if they're not being designed for people with differently wired brains. I don't know the if there's any science to back that up, but I just found it seemed like a really good rationale as to why like sleeping tablets and antidepressants often don't work for like autistic and other neurodivergent yeah. people. Because like when you think about it, it's like they, there isn't enough research into like in terms of it. It's like sleeping tablets or sleeping therapies to you know any sort of mental like antidepressants, depression or autistic people there, there hasn't really been much research and understanding in mainstream medical practice and academic research and to better understand that area of autism and neurodivergency that probably, like, if it was researched and understood more, it would be one of the more important areas to get getting things better. To, for autistic people than just, you know, like sometimes when people look or like every research about more what causes autism and all that. I think stuff like understanding like the mental health effects and uh, what can be better treat, treatment for autistic people and the experience with mental health. I think that would be a great thing that does need to be improved on. Yeah, de- de- definitely. Of <laughs> autism, there's is a lot of room for improvement, and and it's, I, I things like accessibility, school, your know, situation in schools. I just hope that in the coming years, things improve. I think you can only, you can only, you know, hope, and obviously as well, like action, speak more than words how are you doing now after all going for all that i mean the, the problem is like with depression i'm not, not going to say that i'm handled fine because i struggle with depression on a daily basis and i think that's going to be something that i struggle with for the rest of my life in terms of like the breakup i've got over that ages ago and and you know i'm in a much better place than what i was in january and and like I said at the start of the call, that's only really been made possible thanks to my parents and family. And I think that, you know, 
well, not think, I know. I mean, if I didn't have any family or friends and was isolated, I think it could have been a different situation. I I don't think I would have pulled through. Yeah, yeah. but makes, like, the, that whole thing pretty, you know, like, sad in terms of, like, how, you know, many autistic people are going with out having much of a, you know, like, a chance in life to... You know, like have in basically, uh, basically, in terms of being able to have a good life, because it's like depressed and envy that, and you know, mental health. It's like the weather. Like some days can be rainy, some days can be sunshine, and well, uh, there's no like single state. So, uh, like after, like, have you been able to get much in terms of like maybe it's like therapy or like any other? like sport like that afterwards and like in terms like do you feel like you're like slowly you feel like things are feeling a lot better in yourself in uh, terms yeah. of I, I would say that the antidepressants I mean I I I should really find time to go to the doctor and, and speak to them because I don't think they really work for me heard so many bad things with the system a lot of the time I I just feel like it, it, you know, kind of suffering in silence a bit, and just thinking, well, there's no point going to the doctor because they, you know, what they, you know, I've had counselling, I've had all these different things, and they, you know, they don't seem to work, and I think that, like I said, I'll probably have depression for the rest of my life. I'm hoping again, you know, with depression, like this year has been a very difficult year for me, so I'm sure that next year. Will be a lot better, and and I've yeah. certainly had years in my life where I would say that like a lot of people, my mental health declined significantly in in pre pandemic, like in lockdown, like two thousand and nineteen. I look at my Snapchat, you get like the memories come up from years ago. Yeah, day I look up at stuff from two thousand nineteen, and it's like it just feels like that I was so happy that year. And I just, like, I do think that, I do believe that better times are ahead. And for me, with my depression more than, like, antidepressants and counselling, I would say that my my parents and family have got, you know, and my brother have got me through it. And, and yeah. without them, like, it could have been a different story. They support me on a daily basis. And so you get good days and bad days. So yeah. it, I was meant to be getting married on October 12th. So I think, like, the fact that October 1st, which is my birthday, is, like, we're coming into October. It's not about, like, missing my ex, because I don't. I'm I'm long over him. It's it's just depressing thinking that I should have been getting preparing for a wedding and just how, like, my life has changed. It's a lot. I understand how you would feel that, because... I guess, like, like I said, like, you, I guess at the point when you accepted that things over, but, you know, like, you know, emotions are complicated and, you know, like, you have to come feel the same, you know, like, some, you know, like, when you, like, have depression or when you, like, sometimes in your head, you naturally go for, like, all the different kinds of emotions and, there's something that you probably do feel a bit 
Todd Fergie for like just Todd Biff. Like I guess it the standard hardness of probably not like having that moment, I guess, that you planned for and not being able to Yeah have that. But yeah, I guess like you know, with the press and you know, like yeah you like you can have to learn and to understand that you get the good days and the bad days, but I think it's like to when you like the moment they had in at the end of December, like you you know, it's like you guess working that you'll never try to like prevent yourself from never getting in that dark space again. I mean, this is is, is funny you mentioned because I would think like the point I was wanted to make was no matter what life throws at you, I think that you can whether a breakup or anything bad thing that happens in life, you can either like suffer with it, which is it's difficult, but it's what you learn from it. And, and I, you know, I, I do think that it, life is always going to be a series of mountains and pitfalls. And I, I definitely learned a lot from the situation. Coming back home from London, like I kind of thought that my life is ruined. I'm like never going to trust someone again or date again, which is what the Huffington Post piece was about dating as an autistic person. I, I've dated people since and and when you feel like your life is over there's always like better stuff around the corner I do feel like for example I got in another relationship and for whatever reason it it, it ended I will always know I can get through it there's not to say that it wouldn't be stressful but I could say that I've gone through the other side I think that you've got to think as positively as you can, which is really difficult if you have depression. And I think as well, talking about your, your problems, whether that is with a psychologist, counsellor, or your parents or a friend, talking about it really helps. And I find from my own experience, writing about this stuff, it's so therapeutic and, and it, it helps me to like process it and, and to like get on with it and I think like I feel so lucky to have that but creative therapy I would say it, it is, is is like so good for me I know everyone's different yeah. but I guess you don't necessarily need to be a writer you can whether it's doing colouring in I think there are always ways that you can channel I mean you're like you're like grief and or your mental health and any issues like that into you know making things a bit better yes. for yourself, but like with creative therapy or it, any sort of thing that's therapeutic, it's about that like getting those emotions out to yourself yes. and not to keep everything bottled in and however yeah. that comes across because as you say with typing and writing things like sometimes you know like talking through things like as I said with your doctor sometimes you know like if being so anxious about going to a doctor, especially like being autistic, sometimes speaking about things is the most natural yeah. thing, thing. Oh. and yeah. it's like it, it doesn't flow out, especially if it's like a strain and you feel like you're on the clock. And I got like sometimes it's like you feel like if you're quite emotional and quite upset and distressed in the moment, you feel like you want to have a bit of time just to allow the words to come out. But yeah. like, 
it's like finding out how they can come out really sometimes. I think like how people react to depression and that is obviously very personal and it's different for as is like autism. But the main thing is with me, like I haven't really looked into professional counselling because I feel like I've done it before and it didn't work and, and you know, maybe I need to have more confidence in, in, in the fact that, you know, you might have a different counsellor. So I, I you know, yeah. but, but I feel lucky at the end of the day, like I said, I've got, I sometimes think that I don't think you necessarily need to speak to a counsellor. I think if you've got the option of speaking with family and friends, I think that that can be just as good because like, I as I said, I went to the doctor, I had sleeping tablets and antidepressants to help me get over this and how I got through it was family being open about it and even us speaking here gone over more than what we said it's therapeutic speaking to people and this is the first time we've ever spoken and I feel like like I said today's been difficult but like I feel so much better and I think that's because it just proves the power of talking about things and not bottling things up and yeah um, because like I remember, like, I started this podcast in uh, 2020, and, like, it was only, like, October last year that we, we started doing it. Like, the thing is, like, I've realised what I find from this, because a lot more that, even though, like, yourself, you know, like, like, I don't find myself in, like, a professional counselling situation, although, like, I've had depression and anxiety myself, something that the anxiety more than anything is that, like, when I was, like, nine years old and all that, mental health has always been a struggle for me, but, th- like, the situation of doing this podcast, like, has t- totally helps my mental health, because, you know, like, it's talking to a neurodivergent to people, and, you know, when you're, like, in a, it's like the thing where you do not raise no other autistic people around you. It's a good thing just to be able to talk with people about their experiences and guess yeah. and listening to all this. It's just I guess even though like it sometimes like I might not have the same experiences with you, but like just in that same that experience makes you feel a bit less alone and I guess can talk about things a bit more naturally and I say that, like, sometimes you've had bad experiences of, like, a psychiatrist and, like, being in mental health, so first can knock back on things, like, and make you cry answers about trying again. But it's like that thing that, like, because, like, you know, many people will listen to it. So I would say, like, don't innovate, don't let an experience, like, prevent from trying it again. You know that so easier said than done, I find. I 100% get, get what you're saying. And, and I think as well, sometimes, like, speaking, like, the act of kindness with strangers, what, what happened in in London, I think it shows as well that there are people, like, if I didn't have family or friends, it would have been different. But I think if you're in a situation where you're not fortunate to have, like family and friends and that sport ecosystem around you sometimes like speaking to to a stranger and I've seen things shared on Facebook where it's like people saying that you know if um 
if you're struggling, my DMs are always open. So I think sometimes, like, you know, speaking to strangers can help as well. You sh- should never suffer alone, which, yeah. which happens to a lot of people and, and people don't, don't pull through because of it. I think, like, this podcast is a really good example of that. We're relative strangers. We've only been connected on LinkedIn for a few weeks and mm. this is the first time we've spoken and I feel like it's helped me a lot and I think that, disproves the, the the power of about things oh fans and it's like as said when you like see stuff on social media and like when you have conversations on mental health it's like that even though people you know like go like say about making sure being kind of people but it's like you know when you like ask you know where people how they feel and you know like be able to listen and get an honest answer to them because I'll say that the kind you know being kind to people as strangers is something that does need to be done within mental health and you know like if you see somebody having a bad day make sure just to try to make that slightly bit better and just like just yeah. have a bit of compassion and empathy like that like I said earlier on the call that it does feel like there are a lot of people out there who don't understand and some people I experience, whether it's like giving you looks of parking and disabled. There are a lot of good people out there as well. It's important to remember that. And I know that when it comes to depression and autism, we all have different experiences. I feel like I know everyone's different, but I just feel like I got through it. And I feel like there is hope for for, for everyone who's, who is struggling with the depression and yeah. things. I do think good things are on the corner. Yeah. Sometimes it's really hard not to think positively when you are depressed, but it does help. Like when, you know, in terms of mental health and me- mental illness and being able to diverge and like basically, like, you know, it, like no matter how different, different everyone's experiences are, everyone deserves the chance of a long life, a good life, and to have hope and, you know, have a chance of, you know, having all that and, you know, like, a chance of, like, being able to have happiness just as everyone else has happiness, you know, and, like, not having anything that, you know, like, anything that would make things worse just because of that, of, like, just having a, like, being different and all that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, like shortly, it's just never like sort question I would ask is you how you know about how you got into journalism and for any other autistic and neurodivergent people get who have an interest in getting into journalism. What tips and ideas? Would you recommend for that? I think first of all, some of think that you need to go to university and, and do a degree in journalism to get into journalism. But even going back 10 years ago, I've done this all. I've built with my family as well, like this, but I've built this career off my own back. And I studied English in university. I never did any formal journalism qualifications. There's, studying me during college or going to university to do journalism is, is a good good step but it's not for everyone like creating a blog or what you you've done creating your own podcast with the internet 
it's possible to start making your voice heard, like creating a blog. And, and I think like in terms of like type of journeys that I do in terms of writing, I think the best thing you can do is write as much as you can every day, even even if it's just in a Word document and, and you're just writing about your day, you write as much as you can and read as much as you can, whether it's like newspapers, news articles, books, I think that I think that's important to like hone your skills. I always found like asking advice from journalists. A lot of the time, people are happy to give advice and point you into the right direction. I think writing to your local newspaper to do work experience, I think, is a really good way to get first-hand experience and and to build contacts. But I think more than anything, the most important thing is just do it. Just start. I started from blogging. So you can, like, action speak louder than words. Like, don't just think you want to be a journalist, do it. And I think we're lucky that this day and age with the internet, anyone can do it. And it's not like before the internet where you had to go to university and then work for a newspaper. I mean, I've never worked full-time at a newspaper. If you want to do a freelance, just start blogging, do work experience and and start building a portfolio and from that then like if you've got an idea for a topic just pitch it to editors don't don't tell yourself that you're an experience you never know if you don't try so if you've got a topic that you think would be a really good topic that you'd like to write about just pitch to editors hone your skills and there's no there's no one way but for me if you told the 14 year old me Nick in 10 years time you're going to be writing for all these different outlets I probably would have, would have been like f off and I wouldn't have believed that person I'm always happy to give advice to people if my dms are always open if someone anyone's listening to this and wanted advice but yeah any final words anything you would like to promote or any last like takeaway comments that you would run when to add in at the end of if I had to summarise everything we've spoken to, spoken about, it's the fact that support for people with disabilities isn't perfect. I do think things can be improved, and I think like having open conversations like we've just had is a really key step in like igniting that change. And I think like more on a personal level, if people you know are struggling with depression, just remember that talking about it, it, it good things are in the corner it's like what Kelly Clarkson says isn't it what doesn't kill you makes you stronger thanks again for tuning into this episode and thanks again for Nicholas Finn for coming on coming on this podcast artist uh new rainbow cast of artistically uh, it was great to have him on and remember if you've been affected by any of the issues mentioned in the podcast you can visit www.newerrainbowproject slash olivebrands dot you know on the internet. That's newerrainbowproject.com slash olivebrands. And you'll be able to find links starting the episode descriptor if you've been affected by any issues raised, raised in this episode. And as I said, next, next episode will be with Sarah and I'll be on, like, for you to watch on YouTube. And, in a way, available for you to watch on YouTube and Facebook watch for you. And, but this episode will also be uh, readable in a text 
these uh, particles that you can get together on a new rainbow uh, project, new uh, rainbow reads on that section of the website. So looking at will uh, be including some of the links of the articles that uh, Nicholas Fern has written about his autistic experience and he gave up, you know, give uh, like some links to me about related to this interview. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. But if there's anything you want to reach out to me, so see my new rainbow at new rainbow project dot com and visit any of the social media channels. We have that so, no one blue sky that at new rainbow or you know Instagram threads, uh, Tumblr, Facebook. Uh, yeah, I think I said Facebook already. And TikTok at New Rainbow Project. And thanks again for listening. This is for the New Rainbow Project, also by me, Autistic Leal. And hope you can join me in the next episode.